Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. This is episode 21, Introduction to Summer Podcast Series, Lies of the Magpie. Hi, friends, and welcome to the first episode of our summer podcast series. And what is this series going to be? Drumroll. I am going to be podcasting chapters from my book. Now, some of you are probably saying, finally, it is about time. While others of you, especially you who are new, welcome, by the way, are thinking, what book? So this podcast is going to consist of two parts. First, I'm going to give a little background info about this book, about this writing project, a little behind the scenes peek. And then the second part of the podcast will actually be the introduction from my manuscript. So a little background information, a little behind the scenes. I'm going to start by confessing things I probably shouldn't divulge, but the truth is I am so nervous. I don't love the term anxiety, but whatever you call that feeling when you just want to curl up in the fetal position under the covers of your bed and just shake, yeah, that's been me several times these past couple of weeks. And yeah, that probably is anxiety. It's definitely a feeling stronger than butterflies, but not as strong as full-blown panic. I'm still alive, and I'm here recording. I can say that for the past several weeks, my brain has been working overtime, trying hard to give me all of the logical reasons why I should not be doing this, why I should not be recording my story on audio. And there are a lot of good reasons, I got to tell you. So for you newbies, let me explain. About eight years ago, eight or nine, I kind of lose track. I began writing the story of my journey through postpartum depression and chronic illness. The manuscript has gone through a lot of changes and a lot of titles. During one revision of it, I was posting it on a blog that I had. So most of you who are familiar with it from the blog probably know it under the title Prozac and Prayer. But it has a new title, and I have to say it's a really good title. Those of you who have been around a little while are probably thinking, Okay, why is she so nervous? She talks about postpartum depression all the time. She talks about her book all the time. Like, she talks about her book so much that we're sick of hearing about this so-called book that nobody has seen and few people have ever read. Yes, I know, I do. I talk about my book a lot now, but it took me a long time. It took me years to even say the words my and book together in the same sentence and out loud. A lot of you closet writers out there are going to relate to this. When you begin writing, you just feel like an imposter. I still feel like, when do I get to officially say I'm a writer? Like, do I get an official certificate in the mail or something so that that's a title that I can own legally and I won't get arrested by the writing police for calling myself a writer when I'm not one? So I'm trying to get braver and I'm trying to own it and say it out loud more because the more I say it, the more real it will become. 
Also, why am I nervous about sharing my postpartum depression story? Because I do talk about postpartum depression a lot. I've shared a letter of light on the Emily Effect blog, and I recorded a video of light for the Emily Effect, and I've done a lot of posts on Facebook about it. So what is the big deal? And I've had to ask myself this question a lot over the past weeks in trying to figure out why I am having this physical reaction. It's like an allergic reaction to even the thought of, to the planning of recording my story in audio form and posting it on my podcast. What's the difference? I've talked about this before and I'm realizing it's the difference between summing up the experience in 10 minutes or maybe mentioning one to two sentences during a talk or lesson or on a Facebook post and delving into 300 plus pages of gory details. It feels like I'm opening my underwear drawer and inviting the world to shuffle through and see what's in there and judge it. It's raw. A lot of it is embarrassing. You get the impression pretty quickly that I'm not well. And it's hard for me to not feel ashamed looking back and realizing how clueless I was about how clueless I was. My thoughts and my emotions, my thinking process, my frame of mind were so distorted and I was completely oblivious. And the thing that I think I've realized makes me the most nervous about podcasting the story versus having it go out in written word form is that it will be in my own voice. When a reader reads words, they read, you kind of read with your own voice in your head. And that at least separates it a degree from being my story. But this being in my own voice, I think is just going to make it more, much more obvious that this is me. This was my brain. This was my thoughts. This is what was going through my head. These are my flaws. There you go. See it all. It feels very exposing. So do you see what I'm battling here with my brain? There really are so many good reasons not to do this. I could just stay safer for the summer and podcast less exposing topics like money management and positive thinking. So why do it? Because I am trying on brave. It boils down to this. Years ago, at my rock bottom, in my moment of crisis, I was able to go to a woman in the middle of the night, nonetheless, for help because she had been brave. She had stood up in front of a Sunday school class and revealed out loud her struggle with postpartum depression. And I remember clearly she confessed to having thrown a garbage can at her husband. And she did all of this before Brene Brown made vulnerability popular, before the Me Too movement made it sort of socially cool to air dirty laundry. That day, she was brave. And probably 95% of the people in the class, including me, judged her. I remember feeling embarrassed that she would confess something so private in public. Then, almost two years later, I ended up on her doorstep on a dark night, and she didn't judge me. She saved me. And that's my why. Another woman's story saved me, and my story isn't doing anyone any good gathering dust in the hard drive of my computer. It's time to put it out there. It's not finished. I am starting to understand that art is never finished. It is, in fact, 
fluid. It's going to continue to evolve. I know it's flawed, but I need to put it out there anyway and see what happens. I need to open one door and see what other doors open from there. I need to take the next possible step. And I have to say honestly that another big reason for me podcasting is selfish as well as functional. So here's the deal. The 11th draft of this manuscript I entered into the Utah Arts Council Original Writing Competition and it won second place. Now this is a 50 year old contest with hundreds of entries. So it's a pretty legitimate thing. I got amazing judge feedback. So my 12th revision was my attempt to address all of the judges comments. And that 12th draft was a bust. It did not work. I went on retreats. I spent hours and hours revising and revising. And when it was done, the manuscript wasn't better. It was just different. So the 12th draft was really a flop. It did not work. I needed another tool, a different method for editing. And in the middle of all of this, trying to revise the 12th draft, I also decided to start teaching classes and to begin podcasting because I figured there's probably more than one way to get this message out and to teach what I've learned. And maybe a book isn't the only way. So I planned out and prepared my podcast and the day that Amazon delivered my new podcasting microphone to my door, I unboxed it and I tested it by reading out loud a chapter from my book. And an amazing thing happened. I could hear what wasn't working in my story. Reading out loud enabled me to hear what sections were boring, what didn't make sense, what didn't matter to the story. And voila, I had my tool. I knew this was the how. This was how to approach the 13th revision. So I have two hopes for this summer endeavor. One, that somebody out there may benefit from hearing this version of my story right now as it is at this time. And second, that speaking my story out loud will be a way to help me make it better. And having said this, I welcome your feedback. I have pretty thick skin. I would love to know your honest opinions, your ideas about worked, what didn't work, what didn't set well, what you wanted more of, what was really boring. Feel free to reply to the email that I send out on Mondays with the podcast link. If you have found this podcast through iTunes or Stitcher and have subscribed there but are not subscribed to my email list, go to maliawarner.com hit the subscribe button and you'll be added to my Monday email list. I always send out what I hope is a little inspirational message along with the link to the podcast episode for the week. And that's probably the best way to give me feedback is just replying to that email that I send out. So I am not going to give a fixed time frame for when I think that this 13th draft will be finished or if it will be the last draft. You know how Pixar takes a long time to release their animated films, especially their sequels, because they want to make sure that they're really good? Think of Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, Incredibles 2. And it's totally worth the wait because they are so well done when they come out. That's what I'm hoping for here. So I'm not going to give a hard and fast deadline, but I am feeling like 13 could be a lucky number here. And isn't 2020 such an awesome date? Wouldn't it be so cool to publish my first book in 2020? 
Ooh, that would be so awesome. Okay, three more quick things before diving into the manuscript. And these three things are apologies. I can hear my writing teacher cringe as I break the cardinal rule of never apologize before you present your work. I know, but I'm scared. And when I'm scared, I feel the urge to profusely explain myself. So apology number one, there is a lot of estrogen in this book. There are a lot of hormones. It's about pregnancy and childbirth. It's about breastfeeding and boob changes. It overuses expressions of pain such as ah and 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 oh which I still don't know how to spell out on paper. And which brings me to apology number two. Apology number two, as I mentioned before, this podcast is in my own voice. This is not a good thing. For one, I am not a voice actor. And as a rule, I don't believe authors should narrate their own books, unless you're Neil Gaiman. And if you are Neil Gaiman, I will listen to you narrate the instructions for my dishwasher. But this is still a rough draft of sorts, and I don't have the means to hire a voice actor. And why hire a voice actor anyway when the manuscript is going to continue to evolve into its 13th form, right? So because I'm not a voice actor, I struggle with different voices of different characters or sound effects like ah, ah, and I especially struggle with accents. There you have it. It is what it is. And apology number three, I probably won't podcast all the chapters. I have 10 weeks of summer episodes and 40 chapters, so I might skip around or I might go chronologically until summer ends. I haven't fully decided yet. We're going to kind of see how it goes. Okay, so enough apologizing already? Enough procrastinating? Yeah, let's get this party started. Ladies and gentlemen, I present for you a combination of versions 11 and 12 of the manuscript formerly known as Prozac and Prayer with the new and wonderful title, Lies of the Magpie a memoir, the story of my journey healing through postpartum depression, autoimmune disease, and chronic illness. Today, we are starting with Lies of the Magpie, Introduction, wherein I give a pathetic attempt to imitate my elementary school teacher's Pennsylvanian accent, Ms. Wickersham, the only character in the book other than myself to retain her real name. Are you ready? Here we go. Lies of the Magpie by Malia Warner. Author's note. This is a work of creative nonfiction. The events are portrayed to the best of my memory. While all of the events are true, certain events have been composited for the sake of clarity and brevity. All names other than my own have been changed to protect the privacy of the people involved, except for my fourth grade teacher, Miss Wickersham, because when you have a name like Wickersham, no other pseudonym suffices. Introduction. I met Laya in Ms. Wickersham's fourth grade class. We shared a desk and a pencil box and became inseparable companions. Laya has been my confidant for so long now that even more than 20 years later, I can hardly boil water without consulting her about which pot I should use. More than anyone else, more than my husband, my mother, my sisters, my church friends, my church leaders, it is Laya who I listen to the most when I need to make a decision. 
I remember the first day she sat by me in class. It was the same day I saw 10 magpies in the schoolyard at morning recess. I was a straggly thing, knotted and lanky like the wooden utility poles that carried power to the farms and houses in our sparsely populated town. My stringy brown hair hung in clumps of tangles. In the mornings before school, my mother had no more than enough time to part my hair down the middle, securing the bangs out of my eyes with the snap of a silver click barrette on each side. Mother achieved a straight part by using four squirts of water from her spray bottle and aligning the tail of her pink comb to my nose. Once the top of my hair was smoothly divided and berettoed, the rest of the snarls were left to imposter as tortured curls. The rat's nests were brushed out only on picture days and on Sundays. Laya always had picture day hair. Ms. Wickersham's hair was a marvel to us. She stood at the chalkboard writing multiplication tables, her short, glossy waves shaped into stiff pinks with frosted tips like the multiple peaks of white meringue on a lemon pie. Her hair never moved, even when an autumn breeze through the open window blew papers from her desk. She had moved all the way from Pennsylvania to teach elementary school in rural eastern Utah. Unlike all the rest of our teachers, we never saw Ms. Wickersham at church on Sunday. She might have been the first non-Mormon I'd ever met. Rumor on the playground was that she had a husband, but no children. I didn't know any married woman her age who didn't have children. Ms. Wickersham was an ardent Pittsburgh Steelers fan. She decorated our classroom with football pendants and drank steaming coffee from a black and gold mug. We were Dallas Cowboy fans, or we pretended to love the Cowboys just to torment our teacher. Most of us didn't own much in the way of Dallas Cowboy paraphernalia. Our fathers earned meager wages as farmers or coal miners, but we managed to find enough blue and white to wear on game days so we could tease, taunt, and harass dear old Ms. Wickersham. If the Cowboys beat the Steelers, our jeering drove Miss Wickersham to hysterics until she reverted to speaking with her thick East Coast accent, which launched the class into stomach-grabbing fits of laughter. Her language was so different from the country-western drawl we heard spoken all around us. That fall, however, the Steelers beat the Cowboys 37-26, to and the next day, Ms. Wickersham's hair looked extra stiff and shiny. I didn't care about football. What I loved were the cheerleaders. I had a secret fantasy to become a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. A confidential daydream because my mother thought the cheerleader outfits were inappropriate. Whenever the television camera panned to the cheerleaders during a game, Mom would say, isn't it too bad they couldn't afford to buy enough fabric to finish their costumes? I didn't even tell my cheerleader secret to Ms. Wickersham on the day she asked me, in her distinctive Pittsburgh accent, Malia, what would you like to be when you grow up? On that day, Ms. Wickersham had traded her dress pumps for a pair of sturdy white sneakers to walk laps around the school grounds during morning recess. As usual, I sidled up and became her chatty walking partner. By age nine, I had earned my nickname, Motormouth, as designated by my brother Paul, who sealed duct tape over my lips when his ears grew tired of my endless chatter, particularly when Mom assigned us to pick raspberries together. 
For years, I believed the silver adhesive was called duct tape because, in theory, you could wrap it around a duck's bill to stop its incessant quacking. Also by age nine, I had noticed that when grown-ups found themselves with the awkward necessity of making conversation with a child, they defaulted to the big question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I liked pleasing grown-ups, so when Ms. Wickersham asked me the big question, I was prepared with a long-winded answer. I want to be a lot of things, I said, brimming with self-confidence and not a trace of arrogance, the way only children can. I want to be a singer and a dancer. I gave her an unsolicited performance right there on the sidewalk. She applauded politely. I want to be an astronaut, a nurse, and a teacher like you. Ms. Wickersham nodded. A female firefighter and a writer. Usually my list ended with writer, but I just read A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langer and found my newest role model. I had no interest in being Meg, the main character. I wanted to be Mrs. Murray, the scientist mother. I wanted to grow up and have a chemistry lab built off my kitchen. After school, I would play under my dad's camper shell. My lab was an old piece of wood balanced on two cinder blocks set up with rows of old glass perfume bottles. I'd record the results of my chemistry experiments in between stirring the imaginary stew simmering in one of my mother's rusty old pots. I stopped walking and planted both feet soundly on the pavement and told Miss Wickersham, and I want to be a scientist. Ms. Wickersham also stopped walking, and to her credit, she looked at me. She examined me from the puffed sleeves of my bell-bottom pantsuit to my Kmart special, white tennis shoes, which were not the fashionable brown clogs I had begged for for my birthday. Not practical for running around at recess, Mother had said. Ms. Wickersham raised her painted eyebrows to the level of her tinted hair, taking in my straggly hair and my buck teeth. She sized me up to 70 pounds of undiluted aspiration, tilted her head, and wondered which was more pointed, my ambition or my profile. You want to be all those things, she asked. Without hesitation or apology, I looked up at her with all the intensity my brown eyes could muster. Yes, I want to do all those things. I have a lot of interests. Don't you want to be a mother? Ms. Wickersham asked, like your mom. This was 1984, and my childhood was a sandwich formed between two contrasting pieces of bread. One side was the hearty, hand-ground, whole wheat, homemade bread of Mormon conservative motherhood. The other side was the factory-processed, all-white flour, store-bought bread of the 1980s feminist movement. I weighed my answer carefully wanting to please any traditional housewives or glass ceiling breakers who might be eavesdropping on this nine-year-old's intentions. Yes, of course I'll be a mother, but I want to do all those other things too. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Miss Wickersham had taught my brother Paul her first year in town, but outside of Paul and me, who split the middle of our family, she didn't know the three older or the three younger siblings. We have eight kids in my family, I answered. Ms. Wickersham clicked her tongue. Your mother is amazing. For the first time during the walk, I was quiet. 
what did my mom do that was amazing? She wore an apron most of the day and spent a lot of time in the kitchen. She tied my five brothers and our dog to a chair and gave them haircuts when they looked too shaggy. She cut my toenails and taught me to not use bar soap for hair washing. She baked six loaves of bread a week, the number she could fit into the oven, and chocolate chip cookies on Saturdays. She sewed new pants and blouses for me each school year and a ruffled dress for Easter. I didn't know what Miss Wickersham meant because my mom didn't do anything special outside of being a mom. Yes, I plan to be a mother. I want to have six or seven kids, but I won't just be a mother. I want to do all of those other things too. I pictured myself wearing a white lab coat over my apron, exactly like Mrs. Murray. Or was it an apron over my white lab coat? That is very ambitious, Miss Wickersham said. I have a lot of ambition, I assured her. Our walk took us up a hill to a willow tree in the farthest corner of the schoolyard. Passing under the tree, I felt a wet splatter on my arm and looked down to see a white pudding laced with brown stripes dripping down my elbow. It took me several seconds to realize that I had bird poop on my arm. Ms. Wickersham took a tissue from her pocket and wiped at the goop while I scanned the tree. I couldn't see anything until a black and white bird swooped low, brushing the top of Ms. Wickersham's head. She took off her sun hat and waved it at the bird. Shoo! Fly away, bird! she said. The bird glided up and landed on the chain link fence. A similar bird flew out from the tree and sat on the fence next to the first. Their eyes were dark and glossy, like the favorite marbles in my collection. They pivoted their heads with sharp movements, looking wildly around to see what news they could gather about this place. I felt a breeze and turned to see that three more black and white creatures had landed on the grass behind us. Let's keep walking, Miss Wickersham nudged my shoulder. These birds make me nervous. Why? I asked. Haven't you ever heard that seeing a magpie is bad luck? There were hundreds of magpies on our farm, but I never knew they were bad luck. My dad called them pesky thieving scavengers. Nothing scared them, not even our farm dog. They taunted Rascal, swooping and fluttering, working him into running dizzy circles while they stole the very food out of his dog pan during the distraction. Then, for fun, they helped themselves to dessert from the cat's bowl. Don't put too much food in the pet's dishes, Dad would say. I'm going to spend my whole living feeding those thieving birds. Behind us, a sharp chirping erupted. We turned around to see a row of magpies lined up neatly like tin soldiers. My goodness! Ms. Wickersham put her hand to her mouth. I've never seen... Magpies are usually rather solitary. She held her straw hat at the ready. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Never in my life. At once, the birds squawked, hopping and cocking their heads, exchanging gossip and closing in on us. Oh, oh! Miss Wickersham hopped back as a bird swooped up and made a grab for her shiny earring. Down, bird! Shoo! Ms. Wickersham danced in a circle, flapping her hat at the air. Quickly, before I could react, a bird darted up and bit the silver buckle on my belt. We seemed to be caught in a flurry of feathers, Ms. Wickersham and I. We hopped around and swatted our arms. In desperation, Ms. Wickersham removed her silver bracelet and held it out for the birds to see. Here, birdies! Look! She wiggled the bracelet to reflect the sun's light. 
Once the birds were watching, Miss Wickersham tossed the bracelet under the willow tree and grabbed my hand. Run! We ran down the hill and didn't stop until we came to the playground where the sound of school children at play replaced the magpies' threatening squawks. Ten magpies! Miss Wickersham bent over, catching her breath. In all my life, I've never seen ten magpies at one time. I giggled, seeing the terror on Miss Wickersham's face. Why did you give them your bracelet? I asked, wondering why she would part with such a beautiful treasure. Magpies love anything shiny that sparkles. It was worth one bracelet to save our lives, don't you think? She put her hands on my shoulder and knelt down in front of me. I have something special for you, too. With her right hand, she took off her left pinky ring. I knew the ring well. I watched it every day when she wrote math problems on the board marveling how she could form such perfect figures with her left hand. The ring had a red ruby shaped like a heart. Ms. Wickersham held the ring in her thumb and pointer finger, which was missing its Lee press-on nail. I've lost a bracelet and a fingernail to those magpies, she said, still catching her breath. This ring matched the bracelet, so I want you to keep it safe where it won't get lost. It's so pretty. My eyes grew huge and my hands circled the ring as if it were a crystal ball with a message that I desperately needed to understand. Ever since learning about birthdays and gemstones, I had wanted a ruby ring. The ring is called a heart stone. Ms. Wickersham put the ring in my palm. Make a wish and kiss the stone. She closed my fingers tight until I could feel the silver band making an impression on my skin, and it will bring you the greatest desires of your heart. My eyes sparkled, and I smiled widely. Ms. Wickersham winked. She patted my shoulder. You are a special girl, Malia. Thank you for telling me about your dreams. I believe you are going to grow up to do great things in the world. I can't wait to see what they will be. I hugged Miss Wickersham tightly around the neck. She smelled like strong perfume and stronger coffee. She would be my favorite teacher always. The bell rang. In the classroom, Miss Wickersham sat in her chair, bent over, replacing her walking shoes for her dress pumps. When Principal Jorgensen called her name over the intercom, Miss Wickersham, the new student has arrived. Send her down, Miss Wickersham answered. The new girl appeared in the classroom doorway, looking unattached and hungry for an ally. Ms. Wickersham looked around the room, realizing the lack of extra seats. I immediately raised my hand, scooted to the edge of my plastic chair, and patted the empty space next to me. Ms. Wickersham nodded. Two beanpoles could fit in one chair. She walked toward the front row where I always sat. She had straight brown hair, just like me. I had met my match. I whispered to her ear, My name is Malia, pronounced with a long E sound, like Malia. It rhymes with Maria. She whispered that her name was Laya, pronounced with a long I sound, like Laya, that rhymes with papaya. Both of our names seemed Hawaiian, but neither of us were Polynesian. For years, we were Malia Maria and Laya Papaya. I felt more complete that day she joined me on my chair than I ever had. There was something about her I desperately needed.
Every day after school, Lia joined me under the camper shell in my backyard. She was Meg, and I was Mrs. Murray. Add some salt to the stew, will you? I'd say, adjusting my safety goggles over my eyes. And don't get mixed up with the boric acid this time, please, Megs. Lia and I were always so busy playing, daydreaming, planning our future. I never stopped to question whether it was just me or if every girl grew up believing she was special. Did other girls leave their hometowns like I did, lassoing dreams the size of a Texas sky with a rope of ambition equal to the span of those dreams? I never thought it at the time, but today, if I could go back to that moment with Miss Wickersham, the ruby heart stone, and the big question, I would stop, look Ms. Wickersham straight in her eyes, and ask, What do you think happens, Miss Wickersham, when ambitious little girls grow up to be mothers? Thank you, friends, for joining me on this episode, The Introduction of Lies of the Magpie. And thank you for being with me on this journey. Your company means more than I can express. I will meet you back here next week with Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 1.